You're listening to the New World Order, a podcast series from Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world. Thanks to 38 years of reform and opening up, China has become the world's second largest economy. A right path leads to a bright future. Welcome to the New World Order. I'm your host, Vipratap Vikram Singh. This episode is the first in a two-part special on the rise of China. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the geoeconomic rise of China. China's remarkable rise starts in 1948, where after World War II, China emerged as an independent nation, freed from the Japanese Empire. At this critical juncture, China's leadership was divided between Mao Zedong from the Communists and Chiang Kai-shek of the Kuomintang regime. Fears of a civil war were quickly put to rest after a coalition government was established. It was this peaceful transfer of political power which has significantly influenced the ascent of China's political and economic fortunes. It is critical to understand that while China was popularly perceived as a dictatorship, China's political system is not strictly dictatorial. but neither is it democratic china's government works under a seven member politburo standing committee of party congress through which political leadership is elected every 5 years the second influence that explains china's enormous economic rise is its decision to pull itself out of the soviet sphere of influence by opening itself up to the rest of the world a large contributor to this was the thaw that occurred in the 1960s between the united states and china which reached a peak in 1972 when US President Nixon sought reproachment with China. The successful attempt paved the way for China to return to the global stage and by 1979 it was recognized by the United Nations and replaced the Republic of China or Taiwan in the Security Council. December 1978 however heralded great change for China. Under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping the country underwent a modification of its staunch communist based economic system and instead transformed itself through a series of modernization and reforms into a unique system of private enterprise market economy this marked the beginning of an era of innovative economic policies which lifted china's sluggish economy by introducing private ownership implementing a market economy and having less governmental control over trade and services all of which contributed to a robust economic performance china's leadership quickly took advantage of globalization and trade by attracting large amounts of foreign direct investments while maintaining sound monetary and fiscal policies in 2001 china became a member of the world trade organization china's sound macroeconomic management was demonstrated during the 2008 financial crisis as its imports dropped by 15 to 18% resulting in 23 million people becoming unemployed however the economy was able to bounce back and the unemployment rate quickly dropped back down to 4% this performance is in a sharp contrast compared to the performance of the united states and europe which are still recovering from the financial crisis almost a decade later The crisis made it clear to China that its economic strategy had to undergo a change and it began shifting from an export-oriented economy to that of self-sufficiency. It is presently building its domestic consumer sector so that in the future it will have a strong as well as a well-developed domestic market. China's ascent in recent years has been a combination of geoeconomic and geopolitical changes. China's ascent in recent years has been a combination of the geoeconomic and the geopolitical. driven by changing power equations 
As the Chinese economy has grown and become more powerful, it has been it has met and has coupled with an even stronger geopolitical influence, which is being used to reshape relations and reform international systems to better serve Chinese interests. This episode is the first in two parts on the rise of China. This episode will examine the geoeconomic aspects and will examine China's global investments, the Belt and Road Initiative, and the increased role in alternative financial institutions, and more. Our first expert today is Ambassador Neelam Deo, Director at Gateway House. Ambassador, welcome back. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Uh, Ambassador, China's journey has been one which has which is interesting to observe. Since 1978, the country has gone from being one of the largest recipients of FDI to becoming one of the largest providers of FDI across the world. China has spent the greater part of these 30 years establishing a deep network of dependency through indispensable trade value chains with many countries. What has exactly been the key to their powerful strategy? You know, the way I look at it is that uh, a country which has... uh, traded last year worth $4.2 trillion is clearly at the center of many of the global supply chains. But these supply chains are producing uh, components. They travel back and forth. And that is why sometimes the trade figures can be very high, but the eventual output may be of a lesser value. But what is important here is that these supply chains integrate the production facilities in many countries, but they all come together in China, which makes it in many ways the center of manufacturing in the world, since it is now the largest exporter of manufacturers. But China's own policies, as have been enunciated most recently in the Communist Party Committee meeting, uh, are also to try to shift its production to a higher value product, to more sophisticated products, because it recognizes that it cannot continue to produce the kind of cheap consumer goods on which it has built up its growth in the past. Now, what this means is that China requires large quantities of raw materials, and particularly fossil fuels, minerals, and these it has been importing from Latin America, from Africa, from Central Asia, from the Gulf. And these countries, therefore, then become dependent on Chinese growth for their own growth. And we have seen that Brazil, for instance, the economy started collapsing when Chinese growth slowed down. And you see that also in African countries. And the Gulf Cooperation uh, Council, those countries are becoming more and more dependent on China and India for their fossil fuel exports. But in some ways, very vividly, you can see that 15% of Australian exports to China consist of iron ore. So that is a huge dependency for the iron ore industry of Australia. If China were to stop importing that, as it has just done, for instance, in curtailing imports of coal from North Korea, then that specific industry can collapse. And because in Australia that is a privately owned industry, It causes a lot of private pain, but not so much pain to the economy as a whole. And then the other dependency that these long and complicated supply chains create is that China has to hold its surplus funds, the surplus of exports over imports. And it tends to hold these surpluses 
primarily in U.S. treasuries, but also in euros and Swiss francs. So the currencies of developed countries, they themselves in turn, in order to maintain exchange rates, then become dependent on China for continuing to have these holdings. So it is a very complex and very sophisticated system that has been created. But we should always remember that the dependencies are from both sides. China too is dependent. But because China is such a large economy, it can cause pain to small economies once, one at a time, a sort of salami tactics. So for instance, when it was angry with the Philippines, it reduced the flow of Chinese tourists to the Philippines. That is really damaging to the Philippines tourism industry, and it did harm the, the whole economy, but not to China itself. And all of this power can be exercised in this arbitrary way, because many of China's own industries and uh, in manufacturing facilities remain owned by the government itself. They remain state-owned enterprises. Ambassador, as you've highlighted, strategies like these require a tremendous amount of capital and often accrue tremendous amount of debt. Now, you've mentioned that recently the CCP has decided to curb the amount of debt that they would incur. But how long can China sustain practices like this? So these are the, uh, you know, the, these are elements of a sophisticated economy. Uh, foreign direct investment into China last year was almost $300 billion. Uh, this is an extraordinary amount of investment coming into China at the same time as it makes a lot of investment abroad. But most of Chinese investment flowing outwards has been in trying to acquire fossil fuel assets, mineral resources, uh, and in building the pipelines to carry these to China. So what it's doing, for instance, is building ports, it is building uh, gas and oil uh, pipelines. It's a whole one belt, one road uh, project, which has pulled together a lot of infrastructure which was already being built within China, and some for which China had already arrived at agreements in its own periphery, especially Central Asia, some towards uh, Russia. But the centerpiece of all this, of course, is the China-Pakistan economic corridor. How long China can sustain this? I would suggest that China can sustain it for quite a long time because it has foreign exchange reserves of some $3 trillion, which varies, goes up and down depending on exchange rates. But the dangers to this kind of policy and the kind of expectation of continued expansion is that, one, there is a lot of money flowing out of China. So rich Chinese are also taking their money out. And I think in some figures, though these again are estimates and can vary, some $10 billion flows out every month from China. <coughs> there is also the fact that many of these investments that it makes abroad, as also in its own less developed provinces, are not necessarily economically viable. So. The enterprises and the companies that make those investments then become indebted, which means that in the next order of things, the banks are becoming indebted. The banks are going into the red as well. 
So you have a very high rate of indebtedness of provincial governments. The banks carry a lot of non-performing assets. So these strategies are risky, but at the national level, they can be carried on for quite a long time because of the approximately $3 trillion of uh, uh, surplus foreign exchange that China holds on to. Ambassador, you've touched upon my next point, which is about the Belt and Road Initiative. Since 2013, Asia has begun to see the evolution of Chinese FDI into what could largely be considered as China's economic foreign policy in the form of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, there's always a lot to discuss when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative, but what is what exactly is China's grand strategy behind this initiative? Well, the way the Chinese have enunciated their strategy, one is, of course, to try to develop its eastern provinces, those parts of China which remain underdeveloped, which include also minority provinces like Tibet, like Xinjiang, in which there has been quite a lot of unrest. So China probably sees that investment in those regions could pay off by raising standards of living. Aligned to that is to link the economies of these regions with the economies of neighboring countries. And that certainly creates the kind of economic integration which can work well economically, but can be quite dangerous in political ways because in, strategic, uh, in a strategic sense, it creates a huge dependency for the smaller countries on China's periphery, on uh, China itself. At the same time, obviously, China is making some of these investments because it has excess capacity in steel, in cement, in glass, uh, which it has beyond what it needs for its own infra infrastructure building and beyond also what can be afforded because you cannot continue to build infrastructure unless it is also economically viable. And you, know, you do not want to be building roads going nowhere on a continuing basis. So all of these are uh, the elements of this uh, one belt, uh, one road uh, strategy, but it is also a way for China to export its standards. So if China builds a railroad that links uh, China to Russia, say, going through parts of Kazakhstan, then those countries have got to accept the standards of those railroads, the technology that goes into the laying of railway lines, the kind of carriages that are being built, the way that is being run, the software as well, which operates that system. Or for instance, if China builds a port in Sri Lanka or in Pakistan, then the way the construction of the port, the equipment in the port, the management of the port, all of that constitutes Chinese technology, Chinese management uh, techniques, Chinese structures. And then once embedded in the economy, then those economies become dependent in the sense that when they extend that infrastructure, they will be bound to extend it using the same Chinese construction uh, uh, inputs and technology that they had uh, been given maybe at concessional rates. Though it turns out that there is not very much that China is giving at concessional rates. I understand that in the China-Pakistan economic corridor, less than 5% uh, 
of investment is being provided at concessional finance. The rest is all actually quite expensive because there is also insurance elements built into it. So the idea for China is to expand its economy in its periphery into those countries which then become tied into what it is that China produces and sells. And the best example for this is also Indonesia, where China is, uh, Chinese companies are building a railroad, but almost as a gift to Indonesia. But once built, then the Indonesian economy will get tied into that kind of railroad technology and will then be buying it from China for a very long time. Ambassador, you've raised some very interesting points there, but we're going to transition now to a segment on China's role in global economic governance. And joining me to cover this segment is Akshay Mathur, Director of Research and Geoeconomics Fellow at Gateway House. Akshay, thank you for taking the time to join us on the New World Order. Thank you so much for having me for this uh, podcast series. Diving straight into into the matter at hand, what has been the effect of the world economy on China and how has China responded? China has, is known to be a manufacturing giant. It has a huge share of the world uh, uh, trade and uh, uh, a lot of uh, foreign companies are also now based in China to produce and service different parts of the world. The, we know that since the transatlantic financial crisis of 2008, it has had two immediate effects on China. One is of course that the demand for Chinese goods um, has dropped because consumption has dropped in large parts of the world. And uh, what that does is that uh, is that the, the exports that China is so dependent on and is so used to and is the basis for their foreign exchange uh, comes under pressure. The second thing is that a large part of the Chinese exports actually come from the foreign companies that have established their base in China. So it's actually a double hit because not only do the Western countries then demand less of the trade, but even the uh, foreign investments that the Western countries and the and other countries, other companies from around the world that have made in China to produce goods. Uh, also start closing shop and they start uh, they stop investing and uh, so these this this double hit uh, has forced China now to reevaluate and reconfigure its approach to uh, international trade and investment so for instance for uh, to make up for the loss of trade from the Western markets it has been looking regionally and also to some of the other parts of the world, for instance, Africa, Latin America, ASEAN, um, and India. And so it has been more uh, energized in its economic diplomacy just so that it can secure deals and diversify away from Western markets. For the other problem, which is the problem of foreign investments and the lack of uh, foreign capital, China started to look domestically. So for instance, it has now started to make consumption within China a more integral part to its GDP growth, uh, which was earlier only dependent on trade and investment. Right. So they are looking, they also recognize that they have a billion people 
they recognize that they have a huge services economy as well. They, they recognize that it's an important contributor and can be balancing contributor. They've seen how India banks on its domestic market and domestic economy for uh, growth and for resilience. And so it is using, uh, a sh it is gradually turning its wheels and moving towards uh, building its own domestic market uh, as, as a response. So, uh, so, so, that, so these are the two areas in which the world economy has had an impact on China. What has been the role of China in global economic governance and uh, international financial institutions? The best way to summarize that is that China has played a, a very important role in both the existing institutions as well as in the new institutions. If you look at IMF, it has played an integral role in reforming and contributing to the design of rules at the IMF, especially in the 2010 reforms. It has uh, pushed for the re-evaluation of the uh, SDR basket at the IMF. In fact, it has introduced, it has pushed for the re-evaluation of the formula so that it can introduce renminbi as one of the currencies in that basket, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. I mean, the SD, inclusion of the SDR, uh, renminbi in the SDR basket requires uh, a certain kind of change uh, from the uh, from the Chinese side on how their MNB behaves, but also an, a change in evaluation from the IMF side. And uh, it has also had uh, the deputy, a managing, a deputy managing director at the IMF. The managing director is typically a European, as we know, but it has had a deputy managing director. So it has had some experience in governing existing institutions. China became part of the World Trade Organization a decade ago, but it has since also attained market economy status, which is important for China. And uh, you know now they're taking a lead role in trying to revise the rules of, of trade, uh, especially now given that it has emerged as the only champion of globalization and, and free trade, uh, given the... Uh, receding interest from Trump and from and, and Europe and uh, and so even at WTO it is playing a big role we can see that Chinese business magnates such as Jack Ma who run Alibaba proposing creative solutions like EWTO which is for e-commerce so there is an there is an interest on behalf of China Chinese government Chinese businesses to contribute to revise to reform the existing rules of trade and business in the new institutions of course the new development bank the BRICS new development bank and uh, the Asian infrastructure investment bank are the best known examples the BRICS NDB was almost like a stepping stone for China to launch the AIIB uh, not only is it a uh, is China using this as a as a counter for the Western institutions, but it is also backing it up with 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 effort and with capital. You can see that uh, in the AIIB, for instance, it has promised more than fifty percent of the capital is coming from China. Um, you can see that it has also created a formula so that it has China has twenty six point twenty five percent plus share in, in AIIB. Uh, the second largest is actually with India and it is only 7% plus. 
but again it has pulled it has been able to attract all the developed countries as well into AIIB like the UK who the UK actually has a has a vice president at the AIIB like Russia who has which has a vice president at AIIB and I believe there's another set of 10 countries or so that are joining now in 2017 so uh, the coalition at AIIB has grown a lot and lastly it's not just the international financial institutions but also global trade uh, because global economic governance includes international trade and you can see that with the receding interest in TPP actually Trump administration has already thrown it out but still uh, China was not part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, neither was India uh, but China was particularly vocal and uh, the design of the TPP was 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 uh, the design and the motivation for TPP was to contain China and China's place in the global trading system and um, but now with TPP no longer on the table uh, China's interest in in uh, in in furthering its the trade agreements for its own cause uh, has grown so obviously for instance if you look at uh, APEC, China has proposed that that be grown and inc uh, to include more countries and made into something called the free trade area of the Asia Pacific. And so this FTAAP is China's response uh, to a TPP, but with it included. And uh, you never know, maybe it's uh, maybe China's interest in the RCEP, which China and India and others have pitched as the response to TTIP and TPP, the mega trade agreements. Maybe it'll drop. We don't know. Uh, but but you can see that that they are clearly taking this very seriously and uh, and uh, and they take the formulation of these trade agreements and very seriously they take global economic governance very seriously and they're playing a role in all fronts existing as well as new uh, arrangements. Actually, so you you've spoken about how China is becoming an instrumental part in the in the in the fight to keep free trade and globalization alive. But how is China also driving bilateral trade and, e and other economic arrangements? China was known to have a very uh, assertive uh, bilateral negotiation strategy. Uh, typically, it was always uh, castigated as a relationship uh, be between China and a resource exporter. Uh, most uh, countries in Africa and Latin America and around the world where China has a, a bilateral economic relationship is and was based on resource exports. So obviously it lent itself to uh, a lot of suspicion that whether it is truly a fair bilateral agreement between two countries. But that aside, it has been very assertive in its bilateral uh, economic arrangements and it has been very creative as well. So where it has taken the resources, it has also given a lot of aid to those countries. Uh, this aid comes in many forms, some of it is grants, some of it is through its banks, the Chinese development banks as they're called, the big banks like China Development Bank, ICBC. Uh, these are big banks that provide a lot of aid. In fact, in some of the countries in in the world the the aid provided by china through its development finance banks through its policy banks is even greater than the aid provided by multilateral banks like uh, the world bank or the asian development bank or the inter-american development bank 
and so you can you can tell how powerful china's role is and uh, uh, in some of these countries besides the financing part and the resource exports part in addition to uh, to financing and resource exports chinese state owned enterprises especially with engineering companies its manufacturing uh, companies its uh, its oil and gas industry all these state owned enterprises have played a big role uh, in these regions uh, if you remember if we go back to the to the earlier question uh, when it comes to uh, diversifying away i mean Ch- china has now when is now looking at other countries in the world to invest and to and to put its its engineering and manufacturing construction industry and expertise to use and so of course a natural thing for them would be to consider all these countries in the world that want infrastructure they want power plants they want water treatment facilities they uh, country all the other developing countries that want uh, roads and bridges and railways and so it, it seems to be something that uh, china has creatively worked into its bilateral arrangements that it it services the developing country because they get all the infrastructure and it services china because they get to redirect their sitting expertise and capital and resources at a subsidized rate towards building all this infrastructure in all these countries while at the same time doing it in such a way that all that infrastructure gets built to service china and china's foreign economic interests so all the ports and bridges and other capacity that china builds in in some of the foreign countries they all in some way or the other also help china export its products and goods and services to that developing economy of course it helps the developing economy we should understand that that it that that the that the developing economy or the or the other chinese china's partner also develops having that infrastructure but but underneath it all there is also the secondary benefit to china that it gets to build the infrastructure so one belt one road obor which is the most well known example of china's global infrastructure initiative is an example of that and and so i i think uh, china rec- china has this ability maybe the best way to conclude is that china has this ability to operate at multiple levels it can it can it is doing so at the bilateral level very effectively it's doing it in a plurilateral uh, way very effectively it is doing it at multilateral way very effectively akshay thank you so much for these unique insights and we hope to have you back on the show soon i appreciate you having me uh, i hope that was helpful in understanding china's geoeconomic rise uh we have time for one last question so ambassador deo um if i may until recently china's role in bodies like the wto have always involved pushing for reforms however given the this return to protectionism which we're seeing across the world does it seem like the like the roles have reversed where where china is now seeking to maintain the status quo and preventing a rollback of globalization which is what other countries seem to be pursuing well there is no question that the present status quo works well for china it is being able to maintain more than 6% rate of growth it is now more or less the largest trading country in the world 
It invests largely outside. It also receives a great deal of foreign direct investment. So it is in its interest to try to sustain the status quo. But I think we should not forget that the uh, U.S. economy is larger than the Chinese economy. The European Union's economy is larger than the Chinese economy. And then there are other big countries. Japan remains the third largest country in the world. India is growing rapidly. Indonesia is growing rapidly. So China would certainly like to sustain the status quo, but it cannot be the only country which is trying to do so. When other countries with large economies are seeking change, then some change will certainly come in. There will be some pain to individuals, to individual companies, and even to small countries which have become very much dependent on export to China. At the same time, I think it's also important to remember that the, the way China has expanded into neighboring countries has started to also create a pushback. So in Sri Lanka, for example, where there has been a lot of Chinese investment, but really what are white elephants? They, uh, the investment into Hambantota port, airport, a big cricket stadium is completely infructuous to the point that the Sri Lankans are now spending 90% of their revenues on just defraying debt and have actually entered into agreement, I believe to have entered into agreements with China to basically hand over all of these assets to the Chinese over the long run. So this will happen in other countries as well. Even Pakistan itself, such a close ally of China, it is questioning the value of the China-Pakistan economic uh, corridor in hearings in uh, Parliament. So it is not that the economic status quo moves on its own momentum completely separate from the political consequences of this. And certainly in the political arena, China does not have many friends. Most of the Southeast Asian countries are very concerned by what has gone on in the South China Sea. The, uh, the uh, developed countries are very concerned about how their own economies have lost manufacturing prowess. So I think it will be uh, a more complicated uh, outcome with all of these factors uh, playing into the dynamic. And I do think that the influence of the United States economy and politically, as well as of the European uh, Union's economy, will continue uh, to be uh, consequential. Uh, and in fact, there will be many areas which will conflict with what China is hoping to achieve. So the status quo will certainly not be uh, continuing in the shape and form that it has today, there will be many changes. Some may accrue to China's benefit, but there will be other areas in which other players, other economies will move in different directions. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Veer. And thank you so much to Akshay as well for taking the time out for that special segment. Next week on the New World Order, we'll be concluding our special on the rise of China, where we will examine the geopolitical trends which consist of the South China Sea, as well as China's increased influence in the international arena. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please like, 
rate and subscribe to the episode on iTunes and SoundCloud. Have a question for the next episode? Please tweet it to us at gatewayhouse.in. You've been listening to The New World Order, a podcast series by Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world.